You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to Radio MMT. You're here with Anne and Kev, except we haven't got Anne this week. Uh, Anne's, Anne's taking long service leave for October, so we have James. James from uh, the Monday Morning Radio Show, James? That's right, Monday Morning and the Sporting Record. Um, Anne said Anne wanted to have a go on a little break, and I said, oh, this could be a chance for me to flex my economics muscles. Yes, well, well, I, Anne sent a photo to me a little while ago of you sitting at reception Reading, yeah. reading a book called Macroeconomics, which is basically the MMT uh, uh, handbook. You know, it's it's a handbook, mm. and without any prompting from us, didn't come from us whatsoever. And yep. she almost she almost fell over. And, yeah. and she said, oh, "There's another one, like a, a homegrown uh, uh, MMT within 3CR." Yeah. So of course she um, uh, grabbed you and, and uh, had a conversation with you, etc. And here you are today, filling in. Here I am. I've come a long way. Come a long way. So. Uh, I'm interested in your journey into MMT. How, how, yeah. how the hell did you end up sitting at the reception desk of 3CR with a uh, an MMT uh, handbook, the macroeconomics handbook, in your lap? Yeah. Well, as all things, it's a long story. Um, so I started my life out of school studying a Bachelor of Commerce at Melbourne Uni. Yeah. Took some economics classes. And at first, I was really interested. started with ma- microeconomics. Rightio, yeah. I thought, okay, I can get a hang of this. Went into macroeconomics and then... The thought dawned on me. Excuse the language. This is a bit bullshit. Yeah. This is a. This doesn't seem right. You know. This. This is a really common story because we've spoken yeah. to a lot of people who have, have studied economics. Uh, and I think in one of the first shows we did, we spoke to somebody who uh, had this consistent, consistent message coming back to us that people who are doing the conventional, orthodox, neoclassical economics course at universities all around the world sit there and go, "This is a lot of bullshit." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my thought, and I had no idea about economics. I thought, oh, understanding how the world works, because economics is so big, that'd be great. So then I went into studying marketing and management, because those are the two easiest things I could do. The idea was, oh, I could just graduate and get a job and make a lot of money. Fast forward, I start working in marketing, have the crisis that 
this is actually pretty unproductive. <laughs> this is kind of damaging people too. You know, you're exploiting people's nervous systems and psychs. It's kind of like a test of your character, and I think you're past because yeah. you obviously, if you were if you were, weren't a good bloke, you'd, you'd probably be still doing marketing. Yeah, <laughs> so I took some time away from that, discovered the climate change problem, and realised, okay, this needs my attention. This yep. needs my effort. So then I enrolled in a Master of Environment with a focus on policy, governance, and markets, which is kind of the economic stream. Yeah. yeah. And that basically laid out all the problems, particularly neoclassical economics and neoliberalism, but didn't offer any solutions. Right, okay. So they touched on ecological economics a bit, which is really good for diagnosing the problems, but doesn't necessarily have a way forward out of it, Right. in my view. So then I decided, okay, um, I came across the idea of a well-being economy. Right. I was searching for some sort of framework to make sense and move forward on this economics path. And Because we, we hear this uh, this term, well-being economy. It was mm. one that um, uh, Jacinda Ardern uh, from New Zealand yeah. uh, uh, tapped into a bit. And even uh, Jim Chalmers, uh, uh, our current treasurer, before mm. he became uh, treasurer, was dropping this phrase of, of a well-being economy. As, uh, you know, and uh, in economic terms, it's an interesting phrase. Mm. It so, definitely is. Yeah. So... The idea of a well-being economy is that the economy is for people and planet. It's not people and planet for the economy. It reverses that around. And then the idea of this of what well-being is struck me as really interesting. Yeah. Because what the bloody hell is well-being? Yeah. You know, the idea hinges on being. You know, what what the bloody hell is being? being well, we well, still don't know that. Well, a, a neoliberal, uh, a, a neoliberal, uh, what would you call it? Um, uh, definition of well-being would be being rich. Yeah, and, and and that's about it. Like it's it's really is that simple. The whole the whole neoliberal model is based on maximizing your economic potential, which is basically mm. to say uh, maximizing how much money you can store away, how rich you can become. That's, yeah. So that's and that's the the model of economics that we we currently um, subscribe and use worldwide in in the Western world. It, it's based mm. all economics uh, uh, is based on maximizing your your wealth it's, yeah that it's capitalism captured by neoliberalism and distilled into this very simple really simple form which does not if that's all that all it takes to, to be well is to be rich mm. it's it's a pretty flawed uh a pretty flawed definition of being well yeah definitely and the idea that the more stuff you have and the more money you have the better off you are there's a slight element of truth in that because in today's world, you do need a lot of income to do the things that would achieve what well-being really is, you know, well, well, a there's, lot of there's, therapy, a lot of help, a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of investment in yourself. Yeah. There, there's, also, um, there's also a requirement to, uh, to earn a, a certain amount of money just to survive, you know, mm. um, and, and we, see, we see that um, uh, under attack all the time. We've seen rents go up. We've seen houses move beyond uh, mm. uh, beyond the capability of many people to buy them, uh, and so the ability just to exist in some sort of stable uh, stable framework uh, mm. is becoming harder and harder. Um, uh, so I, I, I guess uh, if you're talking well being past that, there's a there's a minimum entry level into into capitalist um, capitalist mm. life uh, to cover these basic things. But yeah, uh, governments don't really consider much else. No, no, they don't. So. In, I started the PhD on this idea of well-being, adjacent yeah. to the well-being economy, trying to figure out, okay, what really is well-being, if you can sum it down to a framework or an idea, and then what do governments think well-being is? 
So I started doing that. Um, then I come across, you know, all the critiques of neoclassical economics, which is the mainstream economics. Yep. Came across the work of Steve Keen. Steve Keen, yeah. Uh, Australian economist who's been trying to debunk mainstream economics his whole life. Right, yeah. um, now, now, he was ahead of the head of the game on the GFC, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he was one of the few economists who predicted there would be a massive collapse of the financial system. Yeah, and it wasn't just like he was um, spruiking a, a random idea. He, mm. he he had reasons that were pertinent and that made that that married with the facts. Uh, yeah, uh, to predict the the GFC. So you so you that's a, a good reference in, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to speak to and if you're going to follow an economist, um, speak to somebody who's got a, a an outstanding track record. Yeah, I mean, when when Queen Elizabeth, I think, learns about it, she asked, "Why didn't we see this coming?" Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and some did, and it's worth listening to those people. So yeah. I dived into his work, and he came out with a new book called "The New Economics," right? Recently, which is a manifesto for a new paradigm of economics. It's starting to emerge, and he had a quote in there which I took to heart, um, which I'll just read out. Sure, he said, "The most important alternative approach to economics." That you should learn, and this is me as a student trying to learn. Yeah. He said the most important are post-Keynesian economics, yep. modern monetary theory, and a thing called biophysical economics. Okay. Uh, well, I know post-Keynesian. I know modern monetary theory. Yeah. Biophysical economics. Something to do with systems and energy and thermodynamics is he's, crazy stuff. He's a real systems guy, and he, um, yeah. uh, Steve Keynes. He's, he's like a. He's. He understands systems. I, mm. I struggle, I've got to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a systems thinker yet. Nah, I'd no. like to be. Yeah. So I looked at those three and thought, okay, biophysical economics, that's 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 out of my pay grade. I, I right. don't have the, the skills for that. Post-Keynesian, very technical. All right, I'll dive into modern monetary theory. Right. So I bought the Stephanie Kelton book, The Deficit Myth, Yep. and that just changed my whole perspective on how money works and the economy and how governments could operate given this tool, you know, modern monetary theory, it's a tool for how to, I guess, govern better or more effectively. Yeah, she's a very good communicator, Stephanie Kelton. She she does what uh, we would like to do, which is uh, distill down the the, uh, the economic uh, techno talk uh, into into something that um, people can understand. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, she does that very well. So this is me, who studied a master environment, which is basically a crash course on how all the things in the world are not going well at all. Right. Um, and talking about deficits and how that's actually a good thing. That blew my mind. And then at the end of her book, in the deficit myth, um, basically said deficits help make progress. So now it's the idea of what do we want to progress towards if we use modern monetary theory as a tool. And she highlighted a couple. So government deficit will help us restore or work on other deficits and these are the good jobs deficit the savings deficit the healthcare deficit the education deficit the infrastructure deficit the climate deficit and the democracy deficit so in my mind it goes all those things i learned in my master of environment about how the world's going wrong this tool modern monetary theory is a way to repair that right so so your introduction to uh, to modern monetary theory, uh, we, we see you sitting behind the desk at uh, 3CR. It's, yep. it's just been this, and, and this is often the case, it's um, something uh, pricks your interest, uh, yep. you hear something that, that makes sense, um, and you know, I, I, didn't, I haven't come from a, uh, uh, an academic background at all, but you hear, you hear a politician or 
or somebody talking about something that you know something about mm. that you don't quite understand and you don't understand it because it doesn't make sense and so much yeah. of our economic framework doesn't make sense and then you hear something that goes hang on that actually does make sense mm. and one thing leads to another leads to another and next thing you're in you're hooked yeah. if you've got an inquisitive mind um, some of these things you just go right well there's a, there's an answer that I've been waiting for for quite some time there's yeah. something which makes sense uh, I've heard MMT um, described, I think uh, when we were speaking to to who was speaking, Alan Kohler from the ABC mm. just recently, uh, and he was saying that uh, MMT is descriptive, not prescriptive. Right. Uh, uh, now, it was interesting speaking with Alan because he he spent fifty years as a uh, uh, an economic journalist, a finance journalist. Mm. He mm. is well researched. He's well read, um, but he is. Uh, his roots are in neoclassical economics. That's the language mm. he's been speaking and talking and, and working uh, within for for years and years and years. Uh, uh, and to see him come across to a more progressive mindset, um, it's it's been an interesting journey. Um, so he's like what I realised after speaking with him is that he's almost there. He's still got a foot in the in the uh, in the orthodox camp. Yeah, because uh, it would be very hard to step away from something that that. Uh, has been indoctrinated into you for for fifty years. Oh, wouldn't it? But he's self-taught, and so and so he's always searching for for mm. new concepts and new ideas, etc. So he says it's um, uh, MMT is descriptive, not prescriptive. But what I would say to that is that if you have an MMT understanding of the economy, you are in a good position to start writing the scripts um, mm. for, to to fix uh, the, the ailments. Mm. Um, that you could write, you could be far better uh, at prescribing solutions if you understand the problem properly in the first place. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I kind of agree with them. But and I hear I hear this a lot from uh, from different uh, different sources. There was a, another fellow. I have such a bad memory for, for memories <laughs> and stuff. There was another leading economist, Nicholas Gruen. Um, right. Uh, I had the. Um, had the fortunate circumstances to be um, work as a handyman. So um, I'm working for this guy. Uh, uh, I don't think you'll mind me using his name, Michael Short. And I was fixing some stuff around his place. And he was uh, a senior editor with The Age. And and uh, I'm fixing stuff and I'm telling him about MMT. And, and he's yeah. kind of going, yeah, radio nutjob. What are you, you know, talking yeah, about? Blah, right. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> So, so we're sitting down having lunch one day with a nice bottle of white. There's a good thing about working for Junos is that they they make nice ham and cheese sandwiches uh, washed down with a nice oh, bottle, of, bottle of shard. It was quite nice. Um, and as we're speaking, uh, uh, he gets a phone call. And he goes, oh, sorry, uh, I have to speak. And, and it's Nicholas Gruen on the phone. And, mm. uh, and Nicholas Gruen's saying to him, look, I've, you know, why aren't you reporting this and blah, 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 blah. And he said, hang on a second. He said, listen, I've got this fellow sitting across, across from me uh, <laughs> and he's talking about – I didn't say MMT. He said he's talking about this thing about blah, blah, blah. And Nicholas Gruen said, oh, right, he's talking about MMT, right? Yeah. And he goes, well, what do you make of that? And he goes, well – he said, "I don't, I don't prescribe to any one economic camp, but if I had to, it'd be MMT." And, wow. I, and so you hear this all the time. Anybody who, any trained economist or anybody who understands it, um, they like the framing of MMT because it explains mm. the way our economy actually works. After all of the years of of gold standards and and currencies and fixed fixed to the US dollar and blah blah blah. Mm. Then you have a fiat currency and finally it distills down to what we have in the modern age and 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 by modern I'm talking about the last 50 years. You have an understanding which which has had looks at everything else and and 
uh, and then explains it, how it's shifted, how it's shifted focus, how mm. all these terms that we've heard have shifted their meaning, or maybe not even shifted their meaning, how they were always supposed to be understood. Uh, and I know this sounds kind of airy-fairy and the rest of it, but once you've... Once you understand something, you can't un-understand yeah. it. You if know what you I mean? know, you know. If you know, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know. You know, once the mystery is taken away and you have an understanding of the machinations of a system, you go, well, I understand how this works now. You can't tell me that it, it works some other way. Yeah. You certainly can't tell me it works another way and, and without an explanation, I want to have a firm understanding of it and expect me to change my, my thoughts, my, my mm. thought process. And so you've obviously come down that, um, that journey. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. And then I borrowed the macroeconomics textbook from the library not long ago. I saw that. You've got an RMIT stamp on the top of it. Yeah. I'm, so um, I'm so happy that, that, that like they're in their library. That's fantastic. They've got two copies there. Yeah. Um, it's My copy is dreadfully overdue. Right. So I'm probably going to incur a fine. <laughs> you but... can borrow mine. I've got one in the van. Oh, okay, <laughs> great. I'll pay you a fine, Ken. No, you, you just have it and read it at your, at your leisure. Oh, yeah. thank you. Um, so it's very dense, the macroeconomics textbook, but yeah. just to have this thing that says, okay, we're going to take an MMT perspective to the whole economy, talk about what they do at the moment, and then here's another way of thinking about it, is just so validating. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, what I do enjoy about the textbook is uh, you can actually bomb in and out of it. You know, mm. like I started reading it from from start to finish, and I'm not a good student, James. I, I Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like I've got a certain attention span. Sometimes I have fits and bursts, you know. So so I can read something, and it's um and it's good, and then and then I get distracted, and mm. I need to do something else. Um, but that textbook I've found that I can pick it up and and jump in, go ahead, jump back, go back in again, uh, and. Uh, it helps me understand. I go, yeah. okay, right, there's a term comes up and I go, I don't understand what that term means. And I look through the index and find it there and they'll be in, in a number of chapters and I go, right, good, mm. okay, get my head around it. So it's a good reference book in in, uh, in that term. Sounds like we're plugging, plugging it, but I'm, yeah. I'm not. I'm just telling you my experience with this book over the last couple of years. So, yeah, yeah, that's a great book. And that's what textbooks are for. Yeah. So yeah. reading the textbook and learning about MMT – in learning about the environment and about inequality and all these things that I did, um, there are so many great ideas already out there of how we can fix this. Yeah. The problem always is, how do we pay for it? And right. I was talking to Michelle Maloney, who yeah. is the founder of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance yep. um, in Australia. And she's been an advocate, an af- activist for a long, long, long time. And she said, the thing that always gets in the way is the economists. So this whole point about how do we pay for it, mm. this is something that we're going to come back to in a short time to investigate because that's a, it's a, a massive bugbear with me. Mm. That, it's where it, if there's one thing that anybody listening to this show or anybody who uh, understands economics needs to get their head around, it's how do we pay for it. And mm. uh, after we play a song, we'll come back and uh, tell you.3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. 
So we just heard from the uh, the Beastie Boys, Groove Homes. Are you a fan of the Beastie Boys at all? Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, remarkable. Would you, would you pick that as a, as a Beastie Boys? Like, no, I wouldn't have. But I could say the Dust Brothers are the producers of the Beastie Boys. They right. make a lot of their beats, and it sounds very Dust Brothersy. Yeah, yeah. Well, as it turns out, the Beastie Boys are actually all accomplished musicians, not just mm. well. Definition of accomplished musicians. Who knows what that is? Yeah. But uh, but yeah, they brought this uh, really smooth album a little while ago, and uh, I yeah, find it wow. constant, a constant resource of of appearing to be sophisticated. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> hey, do what you do. Yeah, I wonder how Anne's going. Anne, I wonder if Anne's even listening. Anne, if she's supposed to be listening to this show, I reckon she should not be listening. She should just be, yeah, like totally removing herself and and taking the break that she said she would. Yeah. Yeah. So in case you haven't um, guessed, we're on Radio MMT, normally with Anne and Kev, but uh, this week we have James Tate, uh, who is another uh, announcer on 3CR, who has an interest in, in, in what do we call it, modern monetary theory as well. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So... um, which is which is great. See, this this is um, uh, kind of proves the point that uh, it's uh, it's about slow change, about mm. about a movement that is slowly seeping into society. Uh, and and I think the th- uh, what's quite disheartening for a lot of people who can see change want radical, quick change. Mm. Never happens that way. No, it's a slow slow movement which is slowly creeping into uh, into society through economists like Nicholas Gruen and. Commentators like Alan Kohler, and and we know that there's um, politicians, particularly in the Greens and the Labor Party, who understand MMT. They're not allowed to talk about it because it's yep. it, it seemed to be radical, crazy talk. But um, but we know that they're out there. So, and you're part of this movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it takes a long time for culture to change, and that's kind of what MMT is going for. You know, you can yeah. change your actions overnight. You can change structures fairly quickly with the right idea. But culture takes a while for it to really sink in, doesn't it? Well, and we're going to touch on this later on because mm. uh, I don't know whether you noticed uh, in the uh, the news at all, but there's a referendum on tomorrow uh, yes. and, and uh, talking about change and, and the pace of change, etc. Uh, and I have some thoughts on this, which we may, if we have time later on the show, talk about it. I'm mm. sure. I'm sure everybody's so happy to hear more and more talk about the referendum. But we'll get round to that. However, before the break, before we went to uh, the Beastie Boys. Um, we were touching on the subject of how do we pay for things. Yes. Uh, now, this is if there's one thing that I reckon anybody who, well, everybody needs to know that uh, when you hear the line, oh, we can't afford it, government hasn't got enough money, we need to raise taxes, uh, and nobody wants to raise taxes, therefore we just can't afford it. Um, mm. This is a line that comes from, uh, from both sides of politics, uh, from the uh, Labor Party, from the coalition. They're always sprouting this line um you know we, we just can't afford it i think jim chalmers was talking about look we can't even afford the good ideas and there's this perception that uh that uh, the the government needs to pay for anything by raising taxes and if it can't raise the taxes then it can't pay for anything mm. if there's one one message that you that any listener uh, could take from uh, from this show Government is not beholden on taxpayers to spend anything. The government is not restricted by its tax revenue to pay for government spending. And we see this. We see this all the time. We see it with submarines. We see it with COVID spending. We see. Mm. We see it, saw it with World War Two. We see how a government, in, a, in in any particular situation, can always somehow, not magically, but but through the system that is actually in place raise the dollars that are required to pay for emergency expenditure, but not just emergency expenditure, any expenditure. 
and I guess this is probably the, one of the largest hurdles that people uh, have with understanding MMT is, is we tell them that tax and government spending are not connected, mm. that, that they're disconnected. Um, your thoughts? Well, for me, it's just the idea, of, it's just a simple question of who creates the money? Where, where does money come from? And the answer is, well, the government does it and the bank does it a little bit, but the government creates money. How much money can they create? They could probably create as much as they want or need. The only thing that they need to be careful of is inflation. And if you control for that, and there's lots of ways to do it, in, a, in, in, in essence, the government could pay for just about anything. And that's the big thing with MMT is, okay, well, if there's only the limit of inflation, what could we do? We could do so much. Well, yeah, you know, like this, uh, it's all these social programs are held up. Uh, we've we've seen just recently uh, there's a housing shortage, uh, and I'm going to talk through this one a bit. Uh, the Labor government uh, presented the idea of having a, a housing fund, a housing future fund. Mm. Uh, so the concept behind that scheme is that they invest ten billion dollars. I can't I can't remember how much it was. Um, uh, an amount of money, billions of dollars, into investment portfolios, and the and the uh, the profit that they make from that uh, investment would pay for the new housing projects. Mm. And so there's a perception there that they can't actually just pay for it straight; that they have to have uh, this investment portfolio, this fund to mm. to raise the revenue to to build the houses. And the Greens kicked up a fair amount of fuss over that because the Greens are more progressive in un although they didn't say it straight mm. they know that that's not necessary yes they know that the government didn't need to pretend to have a, 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 a make profit from a fund to to pay for the housing that they could just just do it directly they could just summons the contractors you know will draw up the whatever whatever tender processes there were mm. uh, and once the tender pr processes are are, are are out there they just pay the builders. They pay the the supply companies. Now you're talking about inflation. If if they do that in an environment where uh, where there's not enough builders, where there's not enough building supplies, and they're competing for scarce resources, that'll be inflationary. Mm. And that's the inflation you're talking about. Is yeah. yes, they 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 have unlimited capacity to spend, but if you're spending into uh, if you're spending into a market which is depleted of resources you're going to push the price up because you're going to need to compete against other people and pay more to mm. get that builder, to, to get that concrete, to get those diggers, you know. Um, and so that's that's the inflationary uh, impact that you're talking about. So when, where before where you did say they only have to consider inflation, well, inflation is actually a consequence of the environment into which you're spending. Mm. Uh, and it's not only inflation, but inflation is the big one. That's uh, the big one. You know, and you hear this quite often. If the government just spends, and uh, it's just printing money and just spending it into the economy, it's going to cause inflation. That can happen, uh, and and they need to be aware that mm. uh, that spending into a uh, an economy which is which does not have the the resources to uh, to have the money spent on, if they if they're buying a scarce resource, yes, it will be inflationary. But if it's not, it's all good. 
Mm. You know, uh, and we know this because they just spent how many billions of dollars on submarines? Oh, 250, 300. Yeah, I've because seen many numbers. Because there's plenty of apparently there's plenty of submarines around, and so that's yeah. not a, that's not a scarce resource. So well, it's, <laughs> always, it's always funny when you talk about healthcare or welfare. It's always inflationary. When you talk about war spending, no, it's necessary. It's not inflationary. Yeah, you know, but, and you think, but, oh, geez, really? You know, and people. I don't know how people don't understand that. They go, oh, you know, yeah, we, we can't we can't build more hospitals because it's going to be inflationary. But And they never question the submarines. No. It's, there's a term for that. It's called um, uh, this social, it's, oh, I don't know. Anne's good at this sort of stuff. She, yeah, yeah, Anne's good at terms. Oh, where, where, where's <laughs> Anne? It's a social disconnect. Of, no, it's called a cognitive disconnect. I don't know what it is. There's, mm. there's a term for it. Cognitive dissonance? Is that that's the one? one. See, mm. you're just as good as Anne. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'm in. I'm, I'm, not very, I'm not very good with this sort of stuff. I need academics around me because, yeah. they, because they have all the right terms. So cognitive dissonance. So people are just so used to thinking of, of, of things in a certain way. It's drummed into them. Like, this is how we mm. do it, this is how we do it, this is how we do it. And and then when you explain to them that that doesn't make any sense, they go, no, it does because that's how we've always done it. And you just go, oh, come on, just think a bit more than that. Mm. So so that's the inflationary effect um, of uh, of government spending willy-nilly into an economy. Mm. Um, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Whenever the inflation comes up, alarm bells go off, I'm off in my head and go, ooh, Inflation, I'm worried about that. But when you put it in the MMT context, that yes, inflation is a thing, but it can definitely be controlled and we can still pay for things, then that makes me breathe a bit easier. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a question. And, and like we say, if um, it's this ability, I think this is the main message that MMT could, could send – to the uh, to the whole of the community, and I don't know how to phrase it. Maybe we can work through this. Bit of a mm. workshop here, James. How do you explain to a community that's been brainwashed into thinking that their taxes mm. uh, uh, are required before government can spend into the economy? And and it's kind of interesting because at the same time that the uh, that the the whole of society has been brainwashed into thinking that taxes are required. So, as if money comes from the uh, from people like you and I, mm. and we have to go and find that money from somewhere, and and every piece of currency that you find will have on it somewhere written Reserve Bank of Australia. So we understand that the money actually does come from government, but we think that it doesn't come from government, and that we need to give it back to the government so that they can spend on stuff. Yeah. How how do we simply tell them that they don't need that that that's not how it operates, and and that they they don't need to this is this is where i have trouble <laughs> that is tough and my budding academic brain immediately goes to definitions yeah a lot of our definitions of these major things in our life like government economy tax they're pretty muddy yeah you know if you ask, what's a government people go oh ooh, ooh. so in my head i've been trying to redefine things based on the different lenses you know the mmt lens and yeah. the well-being lens and stuff so for me, when I think about government with an MMT lens, I think of a government as they do three things when it comes to work. You know, governments make work happen because we all live in a society. Because yeah. in theory, when we live together, we live better in terms of a society. So for me, a government enables work. It creates the conditions in which work can be done. It can make work happen. 
so they can contract certain people to build bridges or, you know, create dams or things like that. Yeah. And it can also shape the direction of work. So where does all this work that we do together go right. in the economy? So, and how do they do that? Money and institutions. You know, money, modern monetary theory, yep. institutions, the rules of the game, formal and informal. So that's my little spiel on governments. Sure. So, so you're saying that um, governments create the, the regulations around work, and yeah. and and the reason we're saying work is central to this is because work work is what we do, and, yeah. and a lot of people um, define themselves by their work. I, I've always fought that, um, but so you have government uh, creating the the conditions of work you know we mm-hmm. live in australia uh, australia was one of the first countries to adopt the eight hour day the 40 day 40 hour week uh, these are conditions of work um, heavily influenced by the labor party and always fought by the coalition because they're a bunch of mongrels and they want us to work more and more for less and less yep. but so there's the battlefield is workers wanting to work less for more and uh, and the owners of industry the, the the capitalists wanting us to work more for more for less so there's the conditions of work when you're talking about the government actually creating work, this is also another neoliberal battlefield um, mm. because uh, post-World War II, uh, we had the the uh, the H.G. Coombs, the Nugget Coombs um, white paper on work, uh, work uh, on employment in 1945. And they've only just released a, a new uh, white paper on yeah. work. It's only just come out. This is the first one since 1945. Jeez. And like, Labor have just brought out, and, I, and look, I need to have a look at it because it's crucially yeah. important. But uh, uh, the Nugget Coombs white paper said that the government needed to create uh, create jobs, create mm. projects um, that would employ the returned soldiers and then uh, a lot of the immigrants that came to Australia afterwards. Mm. And then, of course, the, uh, the, the neoliberals would say, well, government shouldn't be involving themselves in, in that sort of activity. That should be left to the private sector. Yep. And so you have that struggle there. You've got the conservatives saying, government, get out of the way, leave that to the private sector. We know what we're doing. You guys are just a, a bunch of incompetent, um, you know, hopeless buddy, uh, hopeless people. Uh, yeah. And uh, and so there's that one. Now, what was the third one you said there? It shapes the direction of work. Shapes, so shapes the direction. Where is all this work going in the big scheme of things? Right. You know? so, so how does... Well, I've had this discussion with uh, with Anne before, and I reckon um, uh, I reckon it's kind of it pushes it to an extreme. Uh, and this is kind of like the UBI conversation, where you yeah. just you just give people money for doing nothing, uh, which I know Bill Mitchell is very much opposed to. Uh, and uh, I put the proposition that if you paid somebody to dig a hole, uh, and then you paid somebody else to follow through and fill that hole, hmm. so that the net productivity is is zero the effect that that has on the person who is digging or filling the hole gives that dollar more value than if yeah. you just gave them a ubi like a just a, a mm, interesting a, a, a straight dollar um and that's really taking it to uh, an extreme so it's non-productive work there's nothing to show for for the work except that the person working has a sense that they're earning uh, and a person on a ubi doesn't Mm. It's kind of like, uh, and so it's a different mindset when you receive payment. Uh, and that does something uh, to the way we value a dollar. Yeah, well, that comes to the, the sticky definition of what value is mm. as well. From my perspective, I'm, my, I'm, I'm working with the idea that value derives from well-being in some way. 
Yes. With now, a very broad definition of well-being. I think this well-being thing is really important. Mm. So, yes, speak more. Yeah. So, I mean, talking about what well-being is is tough because well-being means such different things to different people, different cultural groups. So we can't say what well-being really is because it means so many different things, but we could probably think about well-being as a general idea. You know what, James? I'm liking what you're saying, mm. but for my well-being, yeah. I need to give my brain just a small little rest so that we can come back to talk about this with, with a little more, a little more attention, a little, a little more attention vigor. span. I think am I am I turning into like a millennial with a? <laughs> anyway, yeah. what we're going to do? We'll take a short break, and we will shortly come back and talk about this concept of well-being. You're with Anne and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us. Say I love you right 
listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au So during the break we heard from Joni Mitchell I like playing Joni Mitchell um, on the mm. radio because uh, she doesn't put anything on Spotify she's kind of like in the Neil Young, Neil Young camp yeah. where she went to anti-Spotify for a while and uh, I just find um, Joni Mitchell a, a rather amazing um, Kind of musician and person. She she describes herself as an artist now. She paints yeah. and uh, and she doesn't sing much anymore. And she's become a bit recluse, etc. But I think she has an excellent mind. And that was her song, um, both ways now, which basically goes along the theme that the more you learn, the more questions there are to answer, and and the more you the more you ask, the more questions there are. It just keeps mm. going, never stops. Definitely. Mm. And I hope she's doing well. Because she had some uh, some serious uh, health issues just recently, but she played uh, earlier this year, I do believe, um, mm. for the first time. Uh, so her well being is, um, is 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 hopefully good. It's on the up at least. We hope it's on the up and list. So speaking of well being, you were saying yes. So the idea of a well being economy or using well being in our governance is something that's getting pretty popular right now. Yeah, I know there are six countries around the world that are trying to become. Well-being economies, full stop. Who? New Zealand, uh, Scotland, Wales, Finland, Iceland, and Canada. Canada? Yes. I like, well, I like all those. I like Iceland. I like Canada. I like New Zealand. Scotland. Scotland depends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My family's Scottish descent, so I was right. born to live on the highlands, throwing yeah. rocks and stuff. Yeah, I'm a bit scared of the Scots, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. So those countries are committed to a well-being economy. Good. So what is what are you talking about when we talk about a well-being economy? Well, an economy that is totally built to enable people to have well-being. The problem is we don't really have a good idea of what well-being is in theory. Right. So we all have the idea of a good life, of quality of life, but what that really is and whether we can universalize that so everyone has a model of well-being 
is difficult because it's culturally different. So every culture, every place has a different version of what well-being is. So, so it's got to be nuanced to your to your local environment. Yeah. yeah. So it's got to be place-based, right. essentially. So well-being is two words put together, well and being. Right. We don't really know what being is. You know, the, <laughs> the entire history of philosophical thought is trying to figure uh, out what being is. Don't it get in that rabbit hole. That's, that's, uh, yeah, that could go anywhere. <laughs> yes. So... In my work, and I will say that I'm on a leave of absence from my PhD right now, just right. to do some other things, like learn about MNT. Yep. Um, in my mind, being is a process, right? Being, yeah. you know, it's continuous. Right. And as humans, and as all life, we're always developing. We're always moving in some sort of direction. We're always becoming something. So being, in this sense, is kind of that black box between what you have been and what you will become. Right. You know, it's this space in the middle. Okay. And that's that's us right now. We're always being something. Right. So so you're talking about the, the intersection of the past and the future. Yeah, 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 in this present moment. Right. So in that sense, I view well-being as a quality of development. I like and this. I like this talk. Yeah, yeah, it's a quality of development. So how are we all developing? Yeah. Because every single thing that happens in our lives, you know, the body keeps the score. You know, it all... Us in the present moment is from the past of many decisions and environments we live in. I've, I've just turned 60, and, and my body has a, a fairly pronounced scorecard. Yes, yeah, right? It builds up. <laughs> um, so when we talk about well-being in, in an economy, it kind of aligns with these ideas of sustainable development to a degree. Sustainable development does have its flaws, um, but it's this idea of healthy and sustainable and just development. Right. That's my understanding of what well-being is. So when you try to get a government say, okay, we're going to do well-being now, um, but a country as big as Australia, for example, that, that mean, has lots of different places. That's many different things for... Lots means, of different cultures. I recall just recently when, um, who was it that said that it was a lifestyle choice for Indigenous populations to live uh, in the outback? Uh, oh, that was yeah. Abbott, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, and he said, oh, well, you know, that's a lifestyle choice, uh, you know, and you might have to reconsider your lifestyle choice. So, so he's, obviously, his concept of well-being is very deficient. Yeah. Uh, because you're talking about people who... Uh, their well-being uh, is connected to country, is connected to place, is connected mm. to history in a in, in a location, a, a place that they know and love and and uh, feel connected to. Mm. Uh, he's he Abbott in this in this instance is arguing the very base, simplistic, uh, neoclassical idea that if you can't afford to live there, then you should live somewhere else. Yeah, and disregarding everything else. What you're saying is that you need to take into consideration. The the effect uh, of, of the environment will have on you, your place in in community, mm. your place in, in for in this instance uh, in country, yeah. uh, and 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 all of the factors that are, that are around that. The factors that that if you're a human being who uh, wants to feel well within yourself, not just physically but but uh, mentally as well, mm. and mental health is becoming a massive issue. These are the indicators of of how uh, an economy is working. Re remembering that. The basic definition of an economy is not – we're not talking about money. We're talking about the distribution of resources. Mm. Uh, and uh, if you listen to the beginning of this show, we we, uh, we make the point that uh, this was the longest continuous uh, 
functioning economy in the world, 65,000 years yep. of being able to live in a place and uh, live well in a place, mm. uh, live with well-being uh, in a place. And there's a lot to be learnt from that. Uh, yeah. So, so this is what we're talking about with well-being. It's not just how much money you've got. It's it's how you how you function as a human being. Yeah. So you know a lot of things go into well-being. Um, academics often silo it into little portions, but if you bring it all together, well-being is a holistic idea. So your economic well-being, your emotional well-being, your physical well-being, your mental well-being, your social well-being, just sort of your entire life. How is it going? How is it developing? And that's based a lot in culture. So how you feel, how you should function, how you relate to the world is often derived from a culture. So for indigenous people, for example, they've got a very, very different mode of well-being than what neoclassical economics says well-being is. Neoclassical economics just says it's about maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain. You know, the old Jeremy Bentham utilitarianism. Right. And has no... I mean, neoclassical economics itself has no understanding of culture, does not work with that at all, and its model of human beings is very flawed. It's very oversimplified. Well, like neoclassical economics um, des- describes its base unit as the economic rational man, yeah. uh, and and its idea of as well as you can be is to maximise the economic potential of your, your of basically essentially a greedy, lazy uh, man. Yeah, uh, and uh, you're uh, selfish, and you're rationally selfish. And that's all you do. You yeah. work for yourself and that's it. And we all know that, no, altruism, that f- debunks the entire thing. Yeah. So when we talk about well-being of different cultures, when we think of the voice vote coming up and having an indigenous voice in parliament and in the constitution enshrined, that is essentially saying that, okay, this group of peoples in this so-called country have a very different understanding of what it is that makes them live well, and thus they should have a say in affairs that concerns them so that they can realise their well-being in their way. Yeah, it's, uh, we've gone there. We've gone into the referendum talk. Yeah. Um, it is on tomorrow, so uh, it was always going to creep into this discussion somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, I, I know it, it's a contentious issue here at 3CR, um, and it's contentious because we have... Two factions who basically um, agree that something needs to be done, uh, yeah. that not just something, that a lot needs to be done. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have one one group of the progressive no vote who are saying that uh, the voice is inadequate um, and that it, uh, it's it's just a, an excuse to siphon off concerns into another another toothless uh, body uh, and therefore mm. the concerns that they have won't be heard and and what's more this this voice will be used as a smokescreen to sideline uh, grassroots movements uh, we then have the other side uh, and I've got to say uh, I'll, I'll say it openly I'm, I'm actually a, a yes campaigner um, mm. I do uh, understand and agree uh, with the progressive no side um, but Call me a naive, hopeless optimist. I, I think that the voice could be a small step in the right direction. Mm. And, and just from my understanding of how politics plays out, uh, and I look at I look to neoliberalism for a model here, and that's going to that's going to raise some heckles. But we've come to 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 live in a very neoliberal society because of small, imperceptible, incremental 
steps that have been taken by the neoliberals uh, who, who to control things, where just just small step by small incremental step, we now find ourselves in this really neoliberal capitalist world. Yeah. It's very different to what it was 40 years ago. And so from this, I've learned that change is longer lasting if it's done in smaller smaller bite sizes. Mm. And so that, for that reason only, uh, uh, I'm a, a yes campaigner because I think that this could be a small step in the right direction. And I mm. fully get the, the progressive no cam- uh, campaigners who say that uh, that it's it's too little, it's it's toothless, it's it's pointless. Yeah. But you know, like I say, I'm a naive, uh, optimistic white guy. I haven't lived that experience. Uh, all I can do is reflect my own own perspective on that one, I guess. And so, so that's why that's why I do it. And and all, I also understand this that when you're on the left, quite often the lefties, they or progressives, I should say, they they have the same objectives, and they but they spend all their time fighting on how to achieve it, and mm. and and the the objectives are often left uh, lost entirely because of the brawling that goes on about how to best achieve something and maybe i'm guilty of being part of that process by taking the position i'm taking i don't know um but Mm. but uh, look i will say this uh, we we understand that the distribution of resources uh in this country is vastly different now to what it would have been 300 years ago and and if there's one thing i could uh, i would love to be standing where i'm standing right now 300 years ago and understand uh, how this place, how this place worked, how how it, um, just how it was, because you know I get called being idealist on uh, you know a bit of an idealist on this, mm. uh, and people say oh you know it couldn't have been that great and it was quite primitive and all that sort of stuff. The things which resonate with me uh, is that is that there's no history uh, in in uh, First Nations people of slavery, imprisonment, torture. Uh, weapons of, of, of warfare, yep. their disputes seem um, small-scale and, and domestic. Uh, and, and generally speaking, it doesn't matter what your history is, if there's major events along those lines, there'll be a record of it. Mm. But there doesn't appear to be. Uh, and so to me, that seems to be... And when you think about it even further, you've got three, 300 different language groups, no central government, all acting as autonomous collectives. Mm. Like, it's pretty hippie. <laughs> so, so I don't know, but anyway, look, I don't know. This is the thing, is, yeah. Um, uh, and I don't know, and I'll, uh, I'd like to find out. And uh, if there's a voice that can inform me, uh, you know, I'm all for it. I guess. Yeah, uh, comes back to the definition of politics that I like, which is it's just about who gets what, where, when, and how. Yeah, you know, that's what politics is all about, and economy's linked to that. So it's how we work together. Given that. Um, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance defines an economy as um, how we care for and provide for one another, which yeah. is a really nice definition. And so if the voice gets up, then that gets that could be a way so that in First Nations people can get a bit more, get what they want, where they want it, how they want it, yeah, and thrive a bit better. I, I, I get the point from the Progressive No campaign um, that uh, say this was a Dutton government. Mm. They would. They'd just sideline this. They'd defund it, and it would be... Uh, toothless and pointless so it really does depend on the government to a large degree um and so so there's valid points but there is one uh, and i've been manning polling booths all day there's one thing we can't ignore australia is still a very racist country and there are a lot of small-minded people out there and i've been watching them all week uh, Mm. and that is a problem so um 
Anyway, look, we've gone off topic, James, and look, it's been wonderful having you on the show this week. Um, Great to be here. Uh, we touched on wellbeing, and we need to go there further, and mm. so we'll do that in two weeks' time when we're back here again, because Anne is having a holiday. Can't believe it, Anne. Just taking time off and, and leaving us do all the work. Fair enough. No, that's good. That's good. She's looking after wellbeing, and that's very important, James. That's the most productive thing you can do. That's So anyway, we've got to go, because uh, Vicky's coming up next with Mafalda. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye for now. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. You've got to expose all this rotten... You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.